The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 8. Joe Polanski penetrates the Red Light District. Polanski tried to keep count of each passing day. The light of the white room had virtually prevented him from getting a good night's sleep. He would lie on his stomach and cover his eyes. However, once he had fallen asleep, he would roll over and then the continuous white light would awaken him. Buzzers and bells would sound late in the night for no reason at all, other than the fact that Dr. Richards was trying to mold him into submission. When he had his meals, all his nourishment came from things other than the water, and he'd throw the water down the drain in the side room when it appeared. He calculated he had been in the cell for 30 days, but he wasn't exactly sure. The nights of sleeplessness had worn him down. His eyes were surrounded by deep circles of exhaustion and ached even when he kept them shut. It was now two months since he started growing his beard, and it was long and itchy. His hair, nearing the top of his ears, was a greasy mess. Despite the horrendous conditions, he had ingrained the lines of the mysterious note into his mind. In essence, this form of self-hypnosis gave him the needed strength to survive the cruel and unusual punishment of Dr. Paul Richards. A thin red line appeared above him, and in a few seconds an opening had developed. He saw Frampton standing in the opening. The floor moved upward, but Polanski remained on his back. How are you feeling, Mr. Polanski? How long have I been in here? You've been in here for one month, Mr. Polanski. Polanski sat up and clumsily tried to stand. He fell to his knees, but quickly bounced back up to his feet. As he held on to the unresponsive Frampton, he looked him in the eye. Am I ever leaving this place? We are to proceed to the seminar room. Polanski let go of Frampton and stood on his own. He remembered his instructions in the note and smiled broadly like the man in front of him. Very good, whatever you say, Frampton, said Polanski as he stepped into the field with the frail man and moved into the seminar room. Soon the opening to the room was activated and the early morning light shined into Polanski's tired eyes. It was a welcome change for him and he seemed revived as he stepped into the room. Aren't you coming in, Frampton? He asked as he turned back toward the opening. No, I shall see you later, Mr. Polanski. He closed the opening and left Polanski alone. Polanski walked over to the long window the shadows of the red cliffs extended over the town as dawn broke. Immediately he looked northward toward his own house and slowly shook his head as tears came to his eyes. His fears about his family threatened to consume him. As he followed the shadows down from the orange-colored church, he felt a large, powerful hand touch his shoulders. Joe, how are you feeling? Polanski rolled his watery eyes as he tried to assume the, assume the character of the Tex, and he turned around. Good morning, sir, he smiled. I'm a little tired, but feeling relatively good. Richards carefully scrutinized Polanski's facial expressions as he extended his hand. Well, you certainly are in a better frame of mind than the last time I saw you. Polanski shook his hand with great enthusiasm. I guess I've become more acclimated to my environment, he said as he looked into the doctor's large brown eyes. I'm glad that you feel that way. I want to discuss the work at the complex with you. I can see the value of your work now. It must go forward, lied Polanski as he slowed his voice so it sounded like one of the techs. Good, good, 
said Richards, obviously pleased with the results of the past 30 days. Let me brief you on the general meaning of Project Hudson, he said as he paused and took a deep breath. Project Hudson has been authorized by the President of the United States for our national security. Plansky tightened his jaw as he thought about the meaning of the doctor's statement. The United States was supporting a project that could undo all of the world as it presently existed. He couldn't fathom the extent of the tragedy. He could see how the future of the world was at stake. As he looked at his keeper, he assumed a naive stance. Oh, by the President of the United States, he asked gleefully. That is correct. And you, Mr. Polanski, will have a direct responsibility in its completion, said Richards as if he were talking to a school child. Me? asked Polanski with an expression of complete ignorance. How can I be of help, Doctor? I don't know anything about time travel. Mr. Polanski, Joe, I am giving you the privilege of being the first human being to travel through time and return to the present, he said excitedly. I would be honored to work for you, Dr. Richards, in any capacity. Do I have to learn to operate the controls? How long will I be gone? To where? I will be coming back, won't I? Oh, I just can't believe it. I'm so excited. If only my family could know. They will eventually, and we'll all be famous, said Richards. And to answer your questions, you will be brought back to the complex. You will need no training. You will be sent to an as-yet-undetermined location. This is all too much, Doctor. When do I go? If all proceeds on schedule, be prepared for time travel by the end of November. No more than 90 days, proclaimed Richards. I am at your disposal, Doctor, lied Polanski as he shook hands with the doctor a second time. Very good. In the meantime, you shall be returned to your former quarters as a reward for your efforts. You will have full use of the complex except for two very important restrictions. You will not venture into the main complex until we are ready for you. And you are not to discuss any aspect of this project with the techs said Richard sternly. Yes, sir. I understand completely, and I will follow your instructions to the letter. Polinsky faked a look of terror. Now, you will still have use of the recreation rooms, the library, the cafeteria, and some, any area outside the main complex. I understand. Very good, very good. Now, if you will come with me, I shall personally escort you to your quarters, where you can shower and catch up on some lost sleep, he said as he opened the field to the left of the stage. You see, if you cooperate, the time here can be pleasurable. Polanski's hardest task during the months ahead was playing the roles of an unquestioning tech. He saw it as a challenge at first, but he soon became bored. He also became bored with the techs because they seemed to be agreeing with everything he said. Their sickening smiles and patriotic attitudes annoyed him greatly. His only choice was to retreat to the solace of the library where he could think, read books and magazines and microfilm. Even the materials in the library reflected Richard's demented sense of reality and Polanski spent most of his time thinking.
As the sun's rays grew shorter and the shadows longer across the desert, the end of the 60 days grew near. Polanski sat in front of a microfilm viewer. He had discovered back issues of a magazine called USA, which was known for stunning pictures of the United States. Even though the photographs were blurred, he read each issue in order. He would look at a few pictures, turning the crank slowly, and then sit back and think. He would think almost obsessively about the author of the note from several months back, then just as strongly about his wife and family looking for the person who wrote the note. During the two-month period, he had scanned the faces of every tech, and he tried to discern any atypical traits. It was useless, for he couldn't ask them questions without his inquiries getting back to Richards. He finished the reel of microfilm and put in the next reel. He stared at the viewer was in deep thought when he turned the crank. His eyes opened wide as he peered at the black and white letters on the screen in front of him. The message was clear. Attention, Joe Polanski. Seminar is less than a week away on November 8th. Please do not attend this meeting. I have already spoken with Richards, and he is convinced that your presence will only disturb the techs as they work toward his ultimate goal. Meet me at precisely 8 p.m. at the entrance to the tube under the flag in the main complex. Be assured that the main complex will be empty because of the seminar. This meeting is vital. I will be waiting for you. Your perseverance and courage will stand as an example to all of us when we stamp out this rogue project called the Red Light District. Remember, the future of the world is at stake. Destroy this microfilm at once. The words destroy this microfilm at once repeated itself until the end of the film. Polanski's heart pounded quickly as he looked around the library, but no one was even remotely interested in his reading. He rapidly cranked the film to its completion, took it off the spindle, and stuffed it in a paper container. As he shut off the machine, he checked the area again. The room was silent, and he walked to the rear exit unnoticed. He moved down the corridor toward the cafeteria where the central disposing unit was located. He walked nonchalantly across the cafeteria, and none of the passive techs seemed to be disturbed by his intrusion. The main disposal unit was in the rear, past the food preparation section, and could vaporize any material. Polanski passed several food preparation workers and he pushed open the doors to the rear. He ran across the cement floor to the large metal door in the dimly lit room. The latch was closed, but he opened it and he hurled the microfilm into the void. He closed the latch and turned the dials. The pressure needle jerked to the right and it slowly returned to zero. He knew the message had been destroyed. It was exactly 7.45 on the night of November 8th when Polanski stuck his head out of the oak rim doorway to his quarters. He stepped onto the shiny corridor floor. Like the note had advised, the room was empty. All of the techs had left for the seminar, and Polanski, who did not want to take any chances, ran down the corridor toward the orange doors. He could hear his boots clacking against the floor as he ran toward the doors. With a nudge, he pushed them open and stepped into the room. The spacious main complex was darker than usual, and the air was cool with an odor like a fresh vinyl of a new car. It too was deserted, and he tiptoed onto the carpet. He passed the consoles with their red and green digital readout panels. All of the multicolored switches were in the off position. It was difficult for him to understand these instruments, 
in combination with the master control, which actually contributed to a device that could propel a man back through time. He was in awe of the complex array of scientific apparatus. As he gazed upward to the sky-blue dome with the red infinity symbol in the center, he knew that he was beholding a unique setting, a stunning, significant spot in the long history of the human race. His peaceful thoughts were broken by the figure of a man standing in front of the box-like decontamination station at the far end of the complex. The man waved his arms vigorously. Polanski broke into a sprint. He ran down the aisle passing the consoles and slid onto black linoleum. He gave his hand to the figure, an aging man, but instead of shaking it, the man pushed Polanski into the decontamination station. I apologize for my bad manners, Mr. Polanski, said the man once they were both behind the closed door of the station, but we must remain out of sight. I'm sure that the technicians in the seminar room will be seated. The curtains in front of the window can be opened very easily. Who are you? I haven't seen you around the complex. My name is Dr. John Hudson. You haven't seen me because I am restricted from the very area to which you have access. He said as he shook Polanski's hand. Why are you restricted? I am restricted, Mr. Polanski, because I am the director of Project Hudson, he said in almost a melancholy way. Director? What about Richards? Time is of the essence, Mr. Polanski. I will answer all your questions in a few minutes. If you will follow me, he said as he led Polanski through the green light of the decontamination station. There appeared to be no rear exit from the enclosure, and despite its 20-foot walls, it still felt very confining. Hudson took a small device from his pocket and opened a hole in the rear wall. Like many of the walls in the installation, this wall was not composed of matter, was yet another energy field. This opening was unlike the openings Polanski had previously observed. It was circular, with indistinct boundaries and an array of lights on the other side. Although it resembled moonlight, it had a far greater intensity, an almost ultraviolet glow. Hudson stepped through the hole and was closely followed by Polanski. The doctor sealed the hole with his device and turned to Polanski with a long, overdue sigh of relief. Polanski looked at his thinning white hair, which was frayed in an unkempt mess. His bulging blue eyes looked very tired. The skin of his face was remarkably smooth for his years and was graced by a patchy white goatee around his thin pale lips. He was shorter than Polanski and stood squarely in front of him, wearing a white laboratory coat. Polanski had forgotten the doctor momentarily as he became fascinated with the baffling dimensions of the tube ahead of him. This tunnel blended into itself as it curved under the desert floor. He could find nothing in his frame of reference to judge this maze of white glowing light whose diameter exceeded 200 feet. This is unbelievable, he understated as he continued to eye the structure with his mouth hanging open. I don't remember anyone digging anything in the desert and I've lived in redstone all my life. It is, it's truly remarkable. Thank you, answered the mellow voiced doctor whose smooth tone was in glaring contrast to Dr. Richard's cruel demeanor. If you will kindly step over to the sweeper, we shall begin our talk, he said as he pointed to a vehicle with large black tires. It resembled an enlarged version of a conventional go-kart with two seats anchored in the silver metal frame. Although it was over 30 feet wide and twice as long, it was dwarfed by the spacious tube. Step into the seat on your left, 
said Hudson as he took his position in the seat on the right. There was a control panel on the left and he pushed several of the yellow and green buttons. Two chrome poles extended outward. They were three feet in width and contained vacuum units that sucked in the dust and random particles into the box-like structure in the back of the sweeper. Hudson lowered them onto the surface and started the electronically powered sweeper. He pushed a series of different buttons as if he were programming a calculator and the vehicle jerked forward. If we should be discovered, we shall have a legitimate excuse. As of this time, no one knows of my hostility to this project. Uh, no one but you, he said as they gained speed. Doctor, I don't understand. Why don't you just leave and turn these people in, said Polanski as they moved smoothly through the tube. The surface was so monotonous, it seemed as though they had never left the original point. Because, Mr. Polanski, the very people to whom I would run to are the very same people who have the greatest stake in Project Hudson, said Hudson as he drove the sweeper with his left hand. But Dr. Hudson, Richards told me the project was authorized by the president. Isn't it for national defense? Dr. Richards has a knack for twisting the truth to his own designs. He lied to you. Project Hudson was never authorized by any president at any time. It was originally intended to serve as an instrument of national defense, but it no longer merits that distinction, he said as he alternated glances with Polanski at the tunnel ahead. How was time travel going to be used in national defense, asked Polanski. Let me first say that Project Hudson was an undertaking sponsored by the intelligence services and supplemented by high-ranking officials of the Pentagon without congressional oversight. It was begun 25 years ago in the midst of the communist scare of the Cold War. Believe me, as one of the bright young men in the project, I was swept up in the voluminous propaganda campaigns. I was convinced that Moscow would attack our country without warning. I and others in the project felt that an attack was a certainty. Even after we had begun the actual work, they were surging ahead with intercontinental ballistic missiles. I have a problem when I try to explain that in today's context, but we believed that the end was near. How does that fit in with time travel? Have you ever heard of Dr. David Duncan? Never heard of the man. Exactly. Outside the scientific community, he was unknown. And inside, everyone laughed at his work. He was thought to be what you might call a mad scientist. Until... Until what? Until Dr. David Duncan, the mad fool that they laughed at, propelled a lightweight particle backward in time. The experiment lasted but a few seconds, but he did do it. And even when he announced to the people at the Pentagon, they laughed. But they stopped laughing when he demonstrated his experiments to them in the laboratory. I can't understand how this man, working with virtually no funds in a limited environment, could achieve such a breakthrough. He was 78 years old at the time, and for a half century he slaved away, and in the end, he was successful because of his gifted intelligence and his perseverance. Let me say we were extremely fortunate that Dr. Duncan did not announce his discoveries to the world, for if he did, our enemies from all directions might have used the vast powers that exist within these very walls, he said as he took a deep breath. Duncan most ironically died in his sleep 
Less than a week after his demonstration to the Pentagon scientists, they, I mean a select group at the Pentagon, confiscated his notebooks and equipment, but much work needed to be done. As I look back at it, I cannot see how any of these men had moral fiber to approve such an undertaking. They knew that they would have absolutely no chance of approval from anyone in Congress or the President. They know who could use this for their own purposes. They thought everything was in the best interests of the country. They got willing support from the intelligence agencies. Later, it was narrowed down to a select group. Doctor, I beg your pardon, but you still haven't told me what told you what time travel was to be used for? Polanski nodded as they moved forward in the vehicle. The plan was to send nuclear bombs through time and space. The destination of these weapons corresponded to the major cities and military installations of any country with the slightest hostility to the United States. When one thinks of the security of the United States, the plan sounds admirable. But what about the thousands and yet millions of innocent people who would be annihilated? We are a world of humanity first and nation second. My mind, however, was committed to the realization of that goal. I am only sorry that my conscience did not awaken before we had that power. Not only would the killing be unforgivable, but it wouldn't stop there. There would be other uses for this power. Richards monitored your early conversation with Frampton, and I must say that your argument against time travel was very persuasive and very correct. The power would indeed be misused. A misuse of power does not have to be substantial as you stated yourself, for only a small event's alteration could result in an eventual cataclysm of humanity as we know it. No one must ever time travel. Oh, going back a few weeks won't do much damage, but it could alter history. That, Mr. Polanski, is the greatest sin that I can perceive of. There was a long silence, but Polanski wanted to know more. Doctor, why did they give the drug to the techs? Believe it or not, each of these technicians have doctorates and have specialized in areas of physics where they are needed. They are the cream of the crop. But why drug them? That leads to my second revelation, he smiled. Those people had top security clearance to this project. They worked diligently toward their goals set forth in the directives that I have mentioned. But everything came to a screeching halt two years ago. For it was then, my dear Polanski, that the president became aware of the existence of Project Hudson. And he continued it? asked Polanski angrily. He ordered an immediate termination of Project Hudson. He flew out here himself. I can still see him walking through with his yellow construction hat. But he was adamant. He would have no part of it. He called Project Hudson immoral, ruthlessly barbaric, and a disgrace to the human condition. It's obviously not shut down, argued Polanski. Lower echelon people and all of the agencies were punished severely. Remember that this project, despite its reprimands, was still extremely classified. To continue, they kept the vital facts from the president. They failed to inform him that his close and longtime friends, directors of the intelligence agencies, and respected generals at the Pentagon were the catalysts for Project Hudson's proliferation. It was at that time that those men gave Richards more power. 
They kept me as director, but the true power was put into Richards' hands. I tell you bluntly, Richards is insane. I did not realize that when he was acting as my assistant. He had his outbursts and his egotistic rhetoric, but I had no idea he was unbalanced. The Hudson Project, after the president's order, moved forward and they watched for the results. Unbeknownst to them, Richards had his own demonic purposes. Maybe he had it planned for years, or maybe he had begun to taste that power that finally put him over the edge. He procured the drug, a remarkable and complicated compound from the pharmaceutical companies. It's called Quantrophotamine, or QPB. Once administered into the human body, it takes exactly 60 days to accumulate in the brain, behind the pituitary gland. This sets off a whole series of events in the brain. You have seen the results. The seminar that is taking place right at this very minute is a classical example of reinforcement. The original purpose of the seminar was to discuss aspects and problems of the project. It has been distorted. What's odd is Richard's deranged mind has become fixated on this infinity symbol, which he translates into the number eight, probably because it does resemble the infinity symbol. He has scheduled this seminar on the eighth day of the month at eight o'clock. You see, tears came to his creamy blue eyes. Dr. Richards is not only prepared to annihilate the populations of our enemies, but he is planning to hold the governments of the world hostage until they surrender to him as the sovereign. Polanski laughed. That's impossible. No man can even think that can be accomplished. It's ridiculous. It's no laughing matter. He yelled and his eyes became defiant. He stopped the vehicle. He can do it and he will do it. He has the means and there's no one on this planet that can stop him. No one except you. Me? Asked Polanski, who wondered if Hudson's story could be believed. Richards wants another additional power before he commences with his ultimate goal, as he calls it. He wants the power to send men and himself through ripples in time, which are close to the present time. With that power, he could control armies at will, hold his spoils intact. But sooner or later, it could be 10,000 years from now, someone will use that power to return in time. The temptation is too great. I feel it myself. Yes, but how can I? Mr. Polanski, he said, as he remained stationary in the tube. We are literally days away from accomplishing that aspect of the test. We have failed in the past because of his impatience, his recklessness, and his disrespect for human life. In the past? Ha-ha! Now comes the most agonizing revelation of all. I am in part responsible for your friend Harvey's death, he said as Polanski looked more confused than angry. Richards insisted that we take a chance on a manned venture in the tube. We had sent animals back with inconclusive results. Their molecular structures were subtly changed, but we had no way of measuring the effects on the human brain. Motor and vascular functions were for the most part unimpaired. There were peripheral abnormalities. You saw it for yourself when your friend struggled into the church. It must have been a gruesome sight. We thought he had been beat up. It was as if every bit of tissue had been hit. Indeed, and so were portions of his internal structure. Our efforts were inconsistent. 
We could send the subject backward with no adverse effects, but once thrust forward, the molecular structure was slightly altered. When this is done in the human body, the results can be devastating, and as we have seen, fatal. I begged Richards to wait until our animal tests were 100% successful. Our rate was only 42%, not very good. Harvey was sent back in time. Yes, and Richards cast him out in the desert like a dying animal. Your friend was basically lifeless. The last thing Richards wanted was a search of the area. We thought your friend would be dead in minutes. He never imagined that your friend would regain consciousness and make it into the church. Everything makes sense now, but then, I don't want to sound cold, but your friend's death may be a blessing in disguise, a blessing to the mass of humanity, for your friend's death led you here. That note meant nothing to me, and the police didn't even consider it. I wrote that note as I stood over your dying friend in the tube. Dr. Richards had just returned to the main complex to get the security men who would carry your friend's body into the desert. I knew that he'd be back any second, so I scribbled the most concise message I could. But I still don't understand, Doctor. Why don't you just blow the whistle on Richards? Two reasons. One, to whom, as you say, would I blow the whistle? Any outburst by me would be at once squelched by the agencies. That is, if I could tell anyone, Richards and the security control all the incoming and outgoing communications. I couldn't call anyone or attempt to escape without putting my life in danger. Not that I'm afraid to die for what I believe. Second, you must ask yourself what our adversaries would do if they knew the United States had taken this aggressive step. Even governments who think they are allies of this country are affected. I will not be held responsible for a nuclear holocaust. Both alternatives are not appealing. Only you can prevent these miseries that I have described here tonight. How? Through the tube, of course. And die like Harvey? Well, that would be fruitless. No, no, no. Our tests with animals, even the higher primates, are running 100% effective. The withdrawal problem has been eliminated. There's never been a problem in the forward flow. I wouldn't sacrifice. I think you're just desperate enough to take that chance. Correct. I am desperate, but there will be no problem. There was a long silence. Dr. Hudson unveiled the details of his plan. The only person that we can trust is the President of the United States. That is why I use the term the red light district in my note. The red light district is a code word for this project. The president knows that word, and he met with me privately while he was here. He told me if there were any hitches or problems that developed, then I was to contact him and use that term, the red light district. One call to the president by Dr. Richards to tell him that the complex had been disassembled, which was a lie. After that, Richards controlled all communications to the president. The president and his subordinates assumed that Project Hudson was dead. Perhaps I should have been more specific in my note. You know what you're thinking? Why not go to the news media? I tell you, this is not some wild fantasy, but cold, hard fact. If you do not personally go to the president, then the world will change. You and I are in a unique, pivotal position in history. We can sit by and watch events flow by and see everything that we hold dear vanish because of our inaction. Or we can act like men should act at these junctures and stamp out this red light district at its source. 
Polanski thought of his wife and children as he looked up at the aging scientists. And if we go through with Richard's plan and don't act, then he will know for sure that men can be dispersed through time. He will then act with deliberate speed. He will begin preparations for his plans. He will deploy troops and infiltrate water supplies of his holdings with QPB. And in a short time, he will have no need for troops. It will be the beginning of the end of humanity as we know it. This is insane. If what you say is true, then I have no choice, do I? Even if you weren't sure of the actual travel, I still have no choice, he said, pushing his whiskers on his lips together. Tell me what you want me to do. First, we must be getting back now, he said, looking at his watch. We can take no chances. He started the sweeper and turned it around on the tube. My plan is this. The president is scheduled for a trip to Camp David on the same weekend that your flight is supposed to take place. The pathways of time are extremely complicated, and I could not begin to explain to you exactly what I propose to do. To sum it up, just let me say I've developed a system to divert the object traveling through time. In other words, when Richards and the technicians send you back through time, you will not go back through time. You will go where I send you. The monitors and the instruments on the console will read positive, so Richards will assume that you have gone where they have sent you. We are approaching the decontamination station, said Hudson as he slowed the vehicle. Dr. Hudson, if I could get through to the president, then what am I supposed to say to him? The answer is simple. You tell him that the red light district is still functioning, and you give the name of the leaders. There's one last problem, and he said as he stopped the sweeper, what's that? You must inform the president of the developments of the past two years. You must stress that he moved cautiously against Richards. I've told you of the possibility of deploying missiles. This is the first option. The second option concerns a nuclear self-destruct mechanism on the entire complex. And lastly, he's devised something called the Red Sequence. Even I cannot figure that out. I know that every number of the flight team has his own responsibility in the Red Sequence. If I could conduct systematic examination with all the technicians, I could tell you the meaning of the sequence. But you must brief the president on all of Richard's options, so if the president gets cornered, he can make the proper decision without being blackmailed by Richards. He paused and put his hand on Polanski's shoulder. You have to trust me in the judgments that I make. The future of the world is at stake, Joe. I'll try not to let you down, Doctor. You won't let me down, I'm sure of that, said Hudson. He looked at his watch and then up at Polanski. We have plenty of time, which is good. You must leave the main complex and return to your quarters. You will not see me again until the actual flight through time. When we are introduced, you must act as if we had never met. I will, when we are alone, give you your final instructions, names of people involved, and of course the outline of what will happen to you in the tube, he said as he paused and then reflected. In all this talk about ending the project, we've overlooked the remarkable fact that you will be the first human being to successfully travel back through time. This tube will take you back through time, he said as he motioned his hand around in the air. It will be incredibly relaxing and enjoyable. Polanski was silent and knew he had a lot to think about. Good luck, Joe, said Hudson as he shook his hand. Polanski nodded as the doctor let go of his hand and stepped onto the surface of the tube. 
With the opening device, he produced a fuzzy hole in the field and motioned for Polanski to step through before him. Polanski got out of the sweeper and walked over to the hole. He went through and waited inside for Hudson. Hudson lifted one leg and then the other over the bottom of the hole as he passed into the decontamination station. Quickly, he closed the field and the room resumed its green-colored atmosphere. When you return, use the aisle nearest to the wall. You will be less conspicuous and run as fast as you can from the main complex as soon as I open the door. And again, good luck, he said as he pressed the button and the heavy door opened. Plansky darted through and then cut to his left. He sprinted across the dark floor and turned onto the carpet, always looking upward at the brown curtains of the seminar room. Seconds later, he burst through the orange doors and into the other section of the complex. He slowed his pace and then walked briskly. Soon he opened the door to his room and fell on the bed. Somehow, the hopes of all had fallen like an unimaginable weight on his shoulders. He closed his eyes and pondered the warped plans of Dr. Paul Richards. He longed for his wife and children. If only he could touch Barbara's gentle hand or pick up his little boy in his arms. They were gone, but their memories lived like a flowering plant in his mind. He tried to remember the cherished moments, but the frightening image of Dr. Richards like a sharp knife would slice into his memories. He could see the charred ruins of cities around the world. His whole way of looking at the world was changing, just as the lifestyle he had led, that tiny little bubble called Redstone, Arizona. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theater of the Words.